Welcome to Healthcare Mixtape, where we're curating the ultimate playlist of healthcare content that you may have missed the first time. Here we share bonus episodes and greatest hits from some of our favorite shows, as well as exclusive interviews with industry insiders, all focused on healthcare changemakers and the disruption of the now. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. I'm Jared Johnson, your playlist curator, and it's time to mix it up. All right, the next in our greatest hits playlist is an episode of the Innovation Accelerator podcast by Innovacer. The topic was the shifting state of healthcare consumerism. It was hosted by Steve Ambrose, and I was a member of the panel along with Gary Druckenmiller and Beth Bierbauer. Gary is the managing director of PRM at Innovacer, and you heard Beth on our last episode. She's the host of the B-Time podcast. We shared where consumerism has been, where it is now, and most importantly, where it's headed and how to thrive in an industry that's changing faster than ever. I encourage you to subscribe to the Innovation Accelerator Show, and I hope you get a lot out of this episode. Check it out. Let the mix begin. Welcome back to the Innovation Accelerator Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Ambrose. Many industries across America are driven through cost, quality, and convenience, and they engage with consumers through free market forces such as supply and demand. So what happens when the biggest industry in America meets up with a growing surge of consumerism, as well as new expectations from its purchasers and its users? Well, today's show is going to help answer that question, along with many others that are in the minds of patients, employers, and healthcare organizations. On our panel today are Beth Bierbauer, a sought-after thought leader in consumerism, Beth has served for more than 30 years for many of the top payers across the country, including her most recent role as president of Humana's employer group segment. Joining Beth is Gary Druckenmiller, patient relationship manager at Innovacer. And rounding out the panel is Jared Johnson, the founder of Shift.Health, an influential thought leadership network for B2B healthcare and health tech communities. Really happy to have you all on today. And before we get started, I'd like each of you to share a little bit about yourselves with our listeners and our viewers. And we'll start with you, Beth. Thanks, Steve. And I am thrilled to be here. As you mentioned, my career has really been on the payer side. I have worked for organizations such as Coventry Healthcare, Humana, and Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield, and have served in a variety of roles. And now I serve as a strategic advisor, working with startups mostly. Thanks for that. Gary? Thanks, Steve. Uh, yeah, Gary Druckenmiller, um, and I'm the uh, GM at Innovacer for our PRM category. Some might call it CRM, but essentially it's all about consumer experience. And for the past 12 years or so, I've been at this intersection of consumerism, um, starting with an organization called Evariant, which was one of the first uh, startups in the CRM space dating back to 2009. Um, and that uh, Evariant got acquired by HealthGrades and that got me to Innovacer. Um, but prior to that, I spent my time outside of healthcare in CPG, hospitality, and that was the ringer for me actually entering into healthcare was to kind of bring real consumerism into the hands of those that need it most on the healthcare side. So best time to be in healthcare is right now. Thanks, Steve. And Jared. Uh, thanks for having me on, Steve, and, and great to be on this panel with Beth and Gary. Uh, 
most recently, I've been involved with a lot of a podcast production. I uh, figured out the other day I've produced over 500 episodes uh, of various podcasts, uh, all in the healthcare space, and some with some amazing uh, guests and perspectives, all having to do with how to make healthcare more consumer focused. Uh, personally, what drives me is besides uh, more than 15 years uh, in various healthcare organizations, uh, payer, provider, uh, health tech companies, uh, what drives me personally is to try to make healthcare easier, less expensive, more convenient, uh, all the things that we hope uh, are the hallmarks of our customer experience in other industries. Uh, that keeps me going. All right. Well, thanks everyone for that. Let's jump right on in. And the first question I have really is, it's going to be for you, Beth. And that is that with respect to design and function in today's healthcare system, what's really been keeping it from being truly consumeristic in nature? Great question, Steve. And there are a couple, couple issues. The first one is there isn't a direct exchange between the provider and the consumer, right? The health plans are involved, employers are involved. So there's not that, la that complete transparency like we have in every other aspect of our lives. We go to the grocery store, we see how much the price is, we know how much money we have in our wallet and whether or not we want to buy that product or good. With healthcare, we don't have that. We don't know what the price is going to be until after the service is rendered. And we don't always quite feel the pinch of the price because it's being funded by our employer. Now, obviously, some of that is changing with high deductible health plans, but I think the biggest thing is there isn't that direct relationship. The second thing is that lack of transparency. Really understanding how much something costs is really critical to being able to make good decisions. And I think the last thing I'd say quickly here is when you don't have transparency, you don't have truly that direct relationship, the consumer then is really not the one determining value. We have health plans that are determining on behalf of consumers whether something's a value. And quite frankly, there isn't always alignment between what a health plan believes or provider believes of value and what the consumer believes is of value. So several key things that I think are really a challenge to bringing true consumerism to the healthcare ecosystem. Yeah, you brought up some great points. And I guess the follow-up to that would be, you know, all that said and, and certainly all that known and do you really see, Beth, that there is going to be a way to overcome this? I think it can. I think we can make progress first by just bringing additional transparency to the table. And, and when I say transparency, it isn't just price transparency, but it's even transparency, for example, for employers to understand the, the flow of the money, right? How does a PBM make money? How does the health plan make money? How does pharma make money? A lot of that information is obscured. And as a result, all the players in the ecosystem aren't necessarily making the best decisions because they really don't know, because they don't have complete transparency, they don't know the money flow. And again, if you go back to a traditional transaction, you go in to buy a car, you understand that there's a manufacturer, a car dealer, and then you. And you know that that car dealer is an intermediary. But they do show you what the manufacturer suggested price is, right? Which may very well differ by retail, uh, the retail price. So I think it's really bringing transparency to the table about where the money flows and also that pricing is really 
critical and we have to simplify too. I don't see any reason why we have literally hundreds of thousands of diagnosis codes, procedure codes. Why? Why? This is just absolutely crazy. There's a real opportunity to simplify transactions. And if we can do that, I think we can start to have people then really become more competitive and people can still compete on quality and cost. Jared, I got a question for you specific to providers and payers, because I don't think this has really gone uh, unnoticed by providers and payers. And in the last couple of years, one of the things that we're seeing more of is this term of being uh, patient-centered, that care is patient-centered or services patient-centered. And I'd like to ask you, is there a difference, the way you're looking at it, between patient-centered and consumer-centered? Uh, I think so. I think patient-centered was a good start to thinking with the service mentality in terms of not being institution-centric. And I I think consumer-centered is more encompassing than that. I think it includes uh, everything that happens when you're a patient, uh, what that experience is. But then I also think it it includes the health behaviors and choices that are made prior to and after you're a patient. And for the majority of people, uh, that is when we're making a lot more choices. Uh, it's not necessarily when we consider ourselves a patient, which is often when uh, you're you're encountering or experiencing uh, any any time, whether it's virtual or face-to-face with a healthcare professional. Maybe it's an, an inpatient stay, you know, you're an overnight stay at a hospital, or maybe you're just visiting the, the doctor, but uh, having an encounter with a healthcare professional, uh, that's when uh, if if we if we're really you know drilling down on the wording, that's what I envision as patient centered. Uh, you're you're patient when those things are happening, but consumer centered implies that there's a lot happening before and after that. It's 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 more in line with the consumer's standpoint because most people, uh, depending again depending on their their disease state and and what conditions and what their health is like, uh, aren't necessarily waking up in the morning and thinking about healthcare choices are going to make, uh, they are going about their day and things that affect their healthcare uh, come and go, either expected or unexpected. And so consumer center to me just implies that, that a lot that has to do with and affects our choices for care happens when we're not being served as a patient at that time. Gary, I know this is a, a topic that that's a bit near and dear to your heart. You got some thoughts on it? Yeah, yeah. First off, I just want to say to, to Beth that you can now buy cars out of a gumball machine too. So, <laughs> I mean, we've we've transcended into an entirely different reality. Um, yeah, the notion of uh, consumer and, and patient centricity. I have a feel Jared and I are going to give probably the same answer throughout the podcast in just varying different ways, but is um, is concentric to the history that got us here. Right. And if you talk to a chief marketing officer over the last 10 years, they would say, oh, it's all about consumerism. But they very rarely found their inputs into the administration and the supply chain of a health system. It kind of stopped when their job was over. And then it became patient-centered care. We get caught up on the linguistics, but make no mistake, these worlds are now blurring right in front of us. And, and, And why? Why would that happen? Well, it's not, as Jared said, it's not an episodic thing. It's something much longer. And we take a step back and take a look at the big picture. Just like Steve Jobs used to say, you have to start with the full experience and back your way into everything else, into the technology, into the process. 
And we just can't do that as an industry. It's starting to change now. Like I'm, there's a reason I'm here at Innovators because we're abiding to this, this law of consumer dynamics, which says you have to know me. You have to show me you know me, essentially, is the term. And in doing so, you have to know every single step I'm going to go through. And that's when the term patient, which, by the way, is an aged term that says I'm only there to cure you when you're to take care of you when you're sick. Like Jared said, like that could be a, a window this this big. What about everything else? The term patient, I, I see it having a very limited lifetime. You know, it's got to to get to the best the world that best described transactional commerce oriented. It's it's like oxygen. You're just in your health. And your health has a thousand different permutations. You're a consumer of your health, plain and simple. Um, so I see we're still in that world right now. There's still a consumer experience officer. There's still a patient experience officer. But eventually they have to combine and become one thing. Beth, uh, when we're looking at the different segments of healthcare, the different major segments of healthcare, you, your providers, your payers, your drug companies as well, where do you see them? maybe on a broad scale here, where do you see them getting consumerism right today? And then where do you really see them really just missing the mark on consumerism altogether? Do you have maybe thoughts on that? Well, from a health plan perspective, for example, um, I I do see improvements in technology, self-service technology available, so you don't always have to pick up the phone. Providers are still lagging there. I mean, they do have their portals, but they're not still, they're still relying on the facts, which I struggle to believe that we continue to, to use that kind of uh, technology, but they are trying to bring a little bit more technology to make things easier to the table. But where I still see problems is there's too much friction in the system. USA Today just um, released, um, did an article on a report that came out of HHS and um, they had an investigation done, and basically one in five claims were denied by Medicare Advantage payers that would have been paid under Medicare fee-for-service. One in five claims. It was 18%. Furthermore, they said 13% of authorizations that Medicare fee-for-service would have approved managed care companies denied. That's astounding. Now, we know that CMS gives some flexibility to health plans, but if you want individuals to come over to a Medicare Advantage plan, it isn't just about giving them some extra benefits like dental and vision. It's about making sure that I'm getting the Medicare coverage that I would get if I was on fee-for-service. And there's just too much friction in the system where we put it on the backs of the consumer to appeal the claim, right? Appeal the authorization, appeal the claim. And I'm I'm telling you, I just went through this myself and it was a six-month ordeal. And guess what? I know what I'm doing. I know the codes, right? I get it. I under I understand it. Um, it's it's a it's a real challenge. And Consumers are feeling that. And that's why I think some consumers are saying, maybe I should just stay in fee-for-service Medicare. And other ones are saying, wait a minute, maybe I should try one of these newer health plans that say that they're going to give me a different experience or they're going to give me a patient navigator or, or you know, member navigation uh, assistance. We really have to step back and remove that friction from the system. I'll just share one thing really quickly. I moved to Florida. In Florida, apparently, you have to get a referral to get a routine mammogram. Now, I have not received a referral to get a routine mammogram. No health plan payer requires a referral for years. 
But not only was I told that I needed a referral by three different sites here in Florida, I was told to go to the prior provider and get a CD-ROM and physically bring the CD-ROM into the provider. And I'm, I'm like going, well, can't you get, can't you get this for me? And I was told we're too busy. That's the other thing from a provider perspective, patients are tired of hearing members and individuals are tired of hearing that their time is not as valuable as yours because their time is valuable, right? It's why you have patient no-shows because if somebody knows they're going to sit in a doctor's office for three hours and miss three hours worth of work, many people won't get paid for those three hours, right? So this friction just continues to exist. And, you know, Gary, you, you talked about it. Jared, you talked about it. We need a consumer experience that respects the consumer, share, share, shares information that they know we know them and care and care about them. And our healthcare system just isn't, isn't there. We talk that we want to get there, but we're just not there. Yeah. Jared, you have some thoughts about this? I do. I think they're pretty in line with Beth. Um, in terms of where, where it seems like we're seeing some success is that we are seeing more access in general to care. We are in general seeing providers and traditional health systems using more digital tools to, to make it easier to get a hold of, of a provider. Uh, that's not the case across the board, but in general, you know, you compare that to even a couple of years ago or, or several years ago, uh, there's more access. There is more digitization of existing processes. And I, I make that distinction rather than calling that digital transformation because digitizing the existing processes, while it can be better, uh, those processes still might not be where, where we want them to be, to be consumer grade uh, processes, meaning that there's still the thought of, uh, in a lot of cases, uh, to uh, for, for admissions, when you check in, uh, instead of having to fill out all the paperwork by hand, now you're filling it out on an iPad. But the question is, I mean, this is an example that's been used in the industry lately. You know, if if that still takes you just as much time to fill out all the paperwork and you just happen to be doing it on an iPad, is it really any better? And so I think you see the the difference with with one of those is really just digitizing an existing experience that is cumbersome. And so uh, I feel like where we're falling short is still there are so many cases where encountering the healthcare system is still too too hard, like period. It's just too hard. It's too inconvenient. It is scary and it's expensive. And that means people are putting off their care. We could go through many, 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 many experiences. We all probably have personal experiences of people who did not seek care, uh, people who, who we know, uh, and that affected them. And the reasons why uh, I don't put on, I don't blame them you know, for not wanting to seek care. It's hard. And like Beth just said, even when you know the cheat codes, like even when you know the language, you know what you're doing, uh, it's still challenging. And so I, I think we have a long way to go. I think part of that recognizes that uh, that there there needs to be more cross functional collaboration for that to happen because it's not happening the way we are now. You know, this brings me to an area that I wanted to address with with you all, and that is particularly value based care. And and Gary, I know it's a it's a big initiative, obviously at Innovacer, 
I know that it's a big initiative in the industry, but I'd like to see how how does consumerism tie into value-based care? Uh, Gary, I'd like to throw that question your way. Yeah, sure. Um, it's, a, it's a great question and one that I, I don't think has been fully realized just yet. Um, the, the promise of value-based care was to improve, because the tied term to that is the pop, is population health, was to improve health and the sanctity of a given population, whether it be an underserved community, whether it be a, a non-fee-for-service, like a Medicare, Medicaid type of environment, um, or a particular service that a health system provided, that they had a greater, they had a contingency for going after that service, whether it's oncology or some others, maybe there's clinical trials or there's research that's coming out of it through an academic. Whatever it is, the goal was always to then eventually bring that to those to whom they serve. Well, that really hasn't happened yet. <laughs> uh, most of the values and the metrics that are coming through are to support the system, the hospital or the health system. When we talk about reducing readmissions by 20%, that's a hospital value. When we talk about improving quality outcomes by 10%, that's a hospital value. Why? Why did those things happen? The next big push for those that have taken on VBC as a going concern which is incredible, right? And it's new, we're just getting started, and this has got a long way to go um, to find some harmonics and balance between fee for service, because everybody would agree, like even that's that's teetering off the edge a little bit. So we have to find some sort of balance between these two worlds. But in order to do that, you have to eventually communicate to your consumers. <laughs> Much of what Beth was prescribing uh, in, in, in some of the previous questions was this nature of, of having the consumer having to respond to you and having to react to you. That's, and I can't think of an industry where that's worse, right? And in every other, industry, I can get my haircut and my, my haircut guy reaches out to me and he's like, Hey, you got to do this. You got to do that. That's my haircut guy. Like why? Well, how can the health system not be proactively monitoring my health in some sort of, you know, mashup of different data sets that, draw a persona and an X on that persona and say, that's you. And we're going to help guide you through this. VBC is, that's a, that was supposed to be the rally cry. So the next big movement of that for consumerism is layering over communication on top of VBC. Communication protocols that are contingent to a journey within those worlds, within a given DMA and personalized you know what out of that so that they know you're there, they know that you're listening and that there's not only a clinical correspondence to that, but as kind of Jared alluded to, some perhaps they're behavioral and there's the stuff that are on the outer perimeters and we're bringing those in as well. Um, that that has to happen. And that's the next big movement for value-based care. Everybody kind of knows that people are kind of struggling the best way to do it. Um, but, you know, communication proactively, not reactively, is the, that next big shift that I see. You know, Beth, I'd, I'd like to get your perspective on that same question, uh, per- particularly having you know, many years on the payer side, uh, you know, what are your thoughts around value-based care and, uh, and consumerism that tie in? Yeah, there are two things that um, I really appreciate that value-based care can, can bring to the table. Number one, if you're thinking about um, a bundle or an episode, now you can have a very transparent flat fee for the member, right? And they know what they're going to get. Think about a pregnancy. You know, if you are pregnant, you are going to go to the, the OBGYN, you know, they're going to deliver your baby. 
You know, you're going to get one or two ultratons. It's all included in that bundle, right? And you know what your copay is. Your copay applies across that bundle. I think there's a real opportunity here as opposed to, gosh, I get the surgery and now I'm going to get something from an anesthesiologist and then the surgeon and then something called a hospitalist. What is that? What is that? Right? Because you're in the hospital. You don't know all these people that are, that are seeing you. That's number one. The second thing I love about value-based care is it affords the provider the opportunity to do what's right without having to worry about whether he or she can bill for it. Because if you're taking global risk, as an example, like many of these primary care providers do, especially for the elderly, right? There are things you're permitted to give to a member, one of your members that a health plan can't, because if the health plan did it, it would be considered an inducement. But if you're a provider, you can, you know, you can buy somebody a meal, you can actually um, pay for pest control. You can you can do their laundry if if that is literally a problem or a barrier as a social determinant to them being able to get get better. Under a health plan, there are many things like that you still can't do. So value based care really aligns what the provider truly needs to do to help that individual with the ability to do it without any repercussions that there's some type of inducement going on. And so I just really think that is so powerful because that's what you want. You want the provider to do the right thing and not say, I can't do it because I can't bill for it or because Medicare won't allow me or the health plan won't allow me to do it. It's just the you're doing the right thing for the right reason. And and I think we'll see more of that as we see value-based care grow. Yeah, it's so interesting you bring that up. It's today when they talk about or when it's talked about personalized medicine, personalized care, it always seems to be sort of framed around personalized clinically. Uh, but in here, you're really talking about personalized for the barriers that an individual would have and then really kind of recognizing, right, and, and sort of filling those gaps to get things started, to catalyze, you know, the efforts that need to be done. Am I, that's what you're saying, right? Yeah, let me give you one really quick example. Oftentimes we think um, transportation, that's a social determinant. And so what we plan for is I can take Mrs. Bierbauer, I can get her a ride to the grocery store. Well, maybe Mrs. Bierbauer can drive, but what Mrs. Bierbauer can't do is lift those heavy cans of Insure that her doctor's asking her to take and carry them into her house. When you're operating in value-based care, you can actually pay somebody to go and take the groceries out of the car and take them into the house, right? You don't, because Mrs. Bierbauer doesn't need the transportation. So that's the personalized care. That's truly solving, and Jared was getting this, the, the true problem that the customer has, right? And, and that's what value-based care allows you to do, to, to truly meet that individual's need in, in a way that makes sense to help improve their health. Gary, I know that at Innovacer, you're, uh, you're heading up patient relationship management. And I'd like you to connect the dots, if you could, on, on where you see patient relationship management, not just serving patients, but really meeting and, and serving the needs of the healthcare consumer. These sorts of tools are meant to serve as, uh, patient relationship management is what are meant to serve as an umbrella over countless, countless processes and sub-processes that cut across three primary domains and what it's kind of you know, rationalizing itself out to be the 
notable consumer experience, which in the hospital world, in the health system world, use a term like access, like these big scary words, nobody knows what they mean. Um, and I get access, I get access, I get, I get granted access into the, into the system, right? And then when I'm in there, I'm in the clinical arena. And then after that, I'm in some sort of wellness arena. And again, these, then we use terms like value-based care and population health to kind of satisfy that interest. But how do all those three get united? Because there's countless handoffs throughout that entire process. And if, and, and if the North American health system has proved one thing, it doesn't do a good job of handing off the transitions or the terms we use. Those transitions might as well be canyon-esque valleys that you're left to your own druthers. You have to figure it out. You have to call back several times. You have to remind them that this is what happened on the last call. You have to do X and then go back. It's like a wonkivator. I go up and I go down and I go all over the place. Right? That, there has to be a mechanism that cleans that and satisfies that. That's what CRM tools, patient relationship management tools, are meant to do, where they establish a longitudinal connectivity from action to action to action. And, they, and they, they jump in and jump out of several different departments simultaneously. They might start with marketing, might move to a contact center, it might go into insurance, insurance might go into coordinated care, coordinated care might go back to insurance, then into referral management and so on down the line. And all these terms are now getting, and all these departments and all the data and all the processes are now getting connected in a sequence. And if, and if the backbone of that patient relationship management or CRM system is data infused and it's not just on screen, then it becomes malleable. And that's when it really gets interesting because once you're able to create malleable, longitudinal, again, using that term journeys, then they build on the fly. And then you don't, then you don't need to really be mapping journeys anymore because that's a big thing. They just happen, but you have to, you have to find which for which service line and for which system they need to be designed accordingly for because everybody does it just a little bit different but that's what those tools are meant to be and then communications content messaging and process all get aligned and they're driven by some sort of backbone of, of data that's just ironclad and almost never wrong that's that's where all the, that's where the next three years is, is heading is to kind of rationalize to that kind of solution to deliver what we've been waiting almost a decade to be able to do beth i'm gonna throw this question at you. And having been in healthcare myself for over 30 years and seeing the changes that have happened, one of the areas in healthcare that appears to be almost taboo to talk about, to address with healthcare leaders is prices or pricing, uh, the level of pricing. And in particular, I wanted to address this with you, Beth. Do you see a time where prices in healthcare, whether we talk about healthcare services, healthcare coverage, drugs, do you see a time where prices are ever going to come meaningfully lower? And if they don't get lower, can we really have true consumerism existing in healthcare? I think that prices will get lower once we start sharing them. And I know a lot of folks are very nervous about um, sharing prices, which they are now obligated to do, as, as, as we know. But do you know of any other industry when prices became transparent or the prices went up? No. <laughs> no. People said, wait a minute, my competitor down the street has a lower price. What can I do to be more efficient? What can I do to be differentiating and, and at least show, share my value, right? So I really believe this transparency of posting prices, number one, and then number two, 
truly playing on the um, the retail game as opposed to rebating. And again, what I said earlier, things that happen behind the scenes. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, so don't misinterpret me. But when when you really can't see where each of the pieces of the money go, you you can't you can't compete. So I think bring it into a true retail environment that says, here's how much we charge, or here's the discount we give to your to your health plan. Yes, that means that health plan A will be able to see what health plan B pays as a particular hospital. But my guess is going to be when that happens, they're going to start to say, wait a minute, I either have to justify my higher price or I have to become more efficient. Because what we really want and the way that to me is optimal is that you really want to make sure that you're going to the facility or to the provider that is the best at something, right? So you're willing to pay more for that because you know that it's better outcomes. You don't always have to pay more for better, for better quality, but get the price out there, get the quality statistics out there, and you will see, I think, the market explode. We're already seeing this in consumers with companies like GoodRx, right? How many consumers are not using their Medicare plan, are not using their health plan because it's less expensive to go pay cash through GoodRx for a drug than it is through their health plan because the health plan, you're paying your co-pay or co-insurance off of the retail price and there's a rebate happening on the back end. So oftentimes what you're paying out of pocket is higher under your health plan than what you're paying under GoodRx, especially when you're talking about specialty drugs and things like that. So bring the prices out, bring the qualities out, show your outcomes. And I think it's a game changer. I really do think it's a game changer because providers are very competitive. Yeah. They want to be the best, right? And they will compete when they know that they're not as good as somebody else. They'll either sit there and say, you know what, maybe we should stop doing heart surgeries here and focus more exclusively on maternity and orthopedics because we're really, really good at that. And and that's where you'll start to have what some of you may remember Regina Herzinger at, at Harvard, those focus factories. People will get better at what they do. And, and the market will, I believe, will will be better off for it. Yeah, you know, that it just brings me just to a very quick follow-up, and that is that, you know, we use this term consumer, and it it seems to me that it seems to always be attributed to patients, but it almost rarely, if ever, gets framed around self-insured employers, which obviously, you know, they're, they're just as much and certainly probably more of a payer than the average individual. Um you know, Beth, so I guess my, my thought would be when you talk about transparency, how do you see self-insured companies, you know, being able to really have leverage on that as well as, you know, individuals? The self-insured employers have been buying services over and above what their health plan offers, these point solutions, because they believe their health plans are not necessarily bringing to the table what they want. So a large self-employer will have their health plan who will pay claims, but then they bring in an accolade, right? To help their employees navigate the healthcare system. They will bring in a third bridge or a Carum Health to bring these um, very specific networks around orthopedic surgery or heart surgeries or, or things like that. They will bring in their own telehealth provider. They'll bring their own mental health providers in. So large self-funded employers have been trying to bring 
transparency and improve the healthcare system on their own where they've seen these deficits with their with their health plans. And again, this is not a knock on health plans. I come from the payer perspective. I'm just sharing with you that when people see a gap and large employers are seeing that, they're not going to sit back and do nothing. They're going to start to bring in these point solutions. And we have just seen it. And I don't see any end in sight for now because they're just saying, I, I need focus on these areas where, to your point, Steve, costs are, are uh, skyrocketing. So they are consumers as well, and they are taking action. Jared, I, I know on you have a background, especially with your show, um, Healthcare Wrap. You talk quite a bit about the retail companies, the non-healthcare retail companies that have really grown in terms of providing care services. Uh, you look at Amazon, Walmart, uh, CVS, uh, although you could argue CVS might certainly have been healthcare before. Uh, and, you know, you're seeing more and more of this from the retail end. You know, as a whole, I'd like you to maybe explain uh, uh, from your perspective why this has really grown out and and just maybe elaborate a little bit more on on retail uh, companies getting into healthcare. You bet, uh, Steve. The reason, in short, why retail companies are coming in and, and succeeding and capturing market share is that they know how to meet and exceed consumers' expectations for the experience they're going to have. They come in with a consumer-centered mindset and a business model and data, and they use those retail chops to come in and address just the part of the value chain that benefits them. They don't often have the same restraints and constraints as a medical institution. You know, Walmart Health could was free to come out when they opened up their their initial clinics and just they just posted all their cash prices. And right off the bat, everyone knew exactly what it was going to cost. And this was it. It was a posted price. You could go to their website beforehand. You actually knew what it was going to cost you. And they were competitive prices. You know, Amazon has an online pharmacy that they you can go and check the prices for the same the same uh, prescriptions that you'd get elsewhere. A lot of times they're they're cost less but they have it all right there. You can, you can shop it. You can look online. You know, a lot of these retailers, they, they use this mindset. They, they have decades of experience addressing consumers. And when they were not in the healthcare game, some of these players, they still, they knew exactly what they were doing. So they're in the habit of communicating, engaging with, uh, gaining the attention of making it clear what they're doing to help serve somebody. It's clear in the majority of their, their communications and their marketing and advertising. And what's interesting is that people in general, with a with any kind of healthcare experience, with with any encounter with a provider, generally give high scores to the care itself. So the encounter, you know, with the care they actually received from their healthcare professional, in large part, they give high scores for that. Where they rank things lower is other parts of the experience. So I didn't get my bill. Uh, until weeks later, I didn't know how much it was going to cost. Uh, it was really inconvenient. Someone was rude to me. It was hard to schedule the doctor. I couldn't get in for 30 days, you know. Um, so other parts outside of the care itself, these retailers can come in. And they know exactly how to address those parts where they're seeing these low scores across the, bo- uh, you know, across the board uh, for, for providers. So what we've seen on the other side of that, is an acceleration of the expectations 
that we bring into any healthcare encounter. And we can point to any number of, of circumstances that have happened over the last couple of years that have led us to have a higher expectation. You know, all of a sudden, our favorite restaurant that we went into a couple of years ago that we that we couldn't go into anymore, they all of a sudden turned around and offered curbside service and they made it easier to deliver to you. And they created digital experiences and digital versions of the things you're used to. You know, even banks, you know, a traditional institution or, or industry like banking and financial services, they figured out how to make things easy. They still needed you to engage with them. And they they figured out a lot of uh, digital tools to use to make that possible. So I think there's, there's a lot to be said for it. Um, you know, when you think about what these retailers offer outside of healthcare as well, convenience, ease, personalization, transparency, yeah, those aren't necessarily the historical priorities for healthcare providers uh, and medical professionals. So I, I think there's there's a lot to keep your eye on. And I don't even know if it'll be the current slate of players that ultimately succeeds, but we need to keep an eye on cumulatively, what is that doing to our expectations as, as healthcare consumers? Gary, one of the things that I particularly have an interest in is certainly data in how healthcare is transforming. How do you see data as a whole playing a role in empowering or strengthening consumerism in healthcare? There was a period in like late 2018 into 2019, and then I think accelerated where the where you saw companies, large data warehouse companies, uh, driven by significant amount of machine learning and, and next generation data models, companies like Snowflake and Databricks. You know, these are some of the largest IPOs ever. For, soft, for software companies began to kind of shatter, um, not to use that term again, but kind of break ceilings when, uh, of acceptability in terms of what you needed to do to reach consumers better. And these are large super brands working with these organizations, and, and they're supposed to know what they're doing. So I think that movement now is, is, is happening here. Um, and you're talking about rebuild, not rebuilding, but kind of consolidating and standardizing for 30 years of fragmented data repositories. And you're talking hundreds of different data centers across your average health system that basically have all have an indifferent interpretation of you. That is all now coming together, has to be cleansed, kind of ratified to a degree to a quality matrix that allows you to do everything that we're talking about. If you don't do that first. There is not one thing on the table that we're discussing today that you can perform. It has to be rooted in some sort of consistency and reliability when it comes to, again, show me you know me. In order to do that, you have to have a single record of who you are. Like this is just table stakes, bottom of the first inning kind of stuff. Um, but here, we've, we've, we've passed the line so far in terms of its feasibility, in terms of it being correct, that we're having to go kind of back in time and then coming forward again. Um, so it's, it's a, it's huge. It's everything right now. It's where almost all of my focus is, um, and will be probably for the next 12 to 18 months. And do you see the single longitudinal record for patients? Do you see that containing consumer data? Yeah. Consumer data where a person, let's say does their grocery shopping or what they buy when they grocery shop or what they buy when they make other purchases outside of healthcare. Do you see all that wrapping into that? that longitudinal record? Absolutely. It, it, absolutely. And I'll go back to what Jared said. Jared talked about like the, the middle window, that clinical window, which constitutes a very narrow percentage of your health time, right? That, that acute. And that's how we've always labeled it. Well, what happens before and after that? That's, 
That's your life. That's your health life. That's far more important than how you got fixed. I mean, don't get me wrong, that's important. <laughs> but how do you prevent that from happening again? What is your mental state and status? What is your family status? How do all of these intersections of where you live, how you travel, all the little nuances we talked about bake in to become a you that they can interact with on a one-to-one -one basis. And, and that, so it's not just consumer data. It's mental health data. It's behavioral data. It's, you know, shopping data, commerce data, your the speed of urgency, like all of these things go into a fabric of you and understanding you. And nowhere is it more important than here. And it tend, and it's just it's just lagging forever. So that persona of you does have to include a consumer centric version, any patient centric version at the highest of standards, working on multiple levels simultaneously. Um, and then and only then can a lot of the machines that we're building in the background, you know, designate then how to interact with you. Um, there's no more greater focus than right now than kind of bringing all of that together. No matter where you are in this space, this is job number one, hands down. Beth, I'd like to uh, get your point of view on pay providers. And in particular, maybe just giving a very high level explanation of what a pay provider is. And then ultimately, do you see the emergence of pay providers helping or hurting consumerism in healthcare? Sure. A pay provider is um, a provider that, be, that assumes risk and they can either become a full blown health plan or they could be accepting global risks, for example, from, from the payer. Um, we're seeing more and more pay providers enter the, enter the system. Um, as an example, for January this year, Oshner Health Plan, uh, they, or Oshner used to have a health plan. Now they reinstated and created a, a new health plan. Uh, they had sold their, their previous health plan. They have a new one for Medicare Advantage members. So they are a pay provider. Intermountain, Kaiser, UPMC, these are all, all classic pay providers that have the full-blown health plan. But I also look at companies like Oak Street, Village MD. I consider them pay providers as well because they're taking global risk. And um, consumers typically really like their pay provider plans, especially um, Kaiser that's been doing it for a really long time because they don't see it as their health plan. They see it as going to their doctor. Right. And it's a very seamless experience like Jared and Gary were, were talking about. I pay my copay and, and off I off I go. They also allows you, I think, to have that flexibility, particularly the providers like the Village MDs, the Oak Streets that are taking global risk, gives you that flexibility to do, you know, what it is you need to do for um the 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 member. Um, one other example, really quickly, Geisinger, right? Geisinger Health Plan is both a health plan and a health system. They've been able to do some really innovative things over year over the years, right? They were one of the first to get out there and start um, helping uh, folks with diabetes by actually giving them food, right? And to help manage their diabetes, they were, I think, the first out there that said. We are not going to charge back to our health plan if we have to readmit you for certain conditions within 30 days. That's on us, and we're not going to charge the health plan again, right? So I think there's a lot of really neat things that, that um, pay providers can do. Um, so I think it's really exciting, and I think competition is always a good thing. Jared, I know on your podcast, you talk quite a bit about, uh, you know, changing sort of changing the design of healthcare. And a lot of times 
as I've heard you say it, it starts within the companies itself. And so with that being said, what sort of changes in business roles or role titles or responsibilities do you see as, as really needing to happen to help catalyze consumerism even more, whether it's with providers or payers or, or any organization in healthcare? What, what sort of roles do you see needing to evolve more? So, you know, I think back to the early days of uh, before we had chief digital officers or before we had certain roles within marketing organizations and, and you know, SEO used to be just one tiny thing that a, a marketing leader would be involved in. And now that's there are roles and teams and, and entire industries dedicated to that. I feel like we're at the cusp of, of something like that that will take some time to, to be uh, adopted in a widespread way, but there's something to be said for having a role for consumer strategy, and especially when we're talking about traditional uh, provider organizations, where that is not typically covered in, as its own function. And so the need right now is to develop leaders who have a very cross-functional mindset. I mean, you think about the the competencies and skills that you need to provide a greater consumer experience. It's a cross-functional role. It's equal parts human-centered design, digital and tech, finance, and marketing. And you might ask why those four things? Well, human-centered design, because first and foremost, we have to design something better, which means that you're putting the consumer at the center of the change management process. There's a whole set of skills and, and frameworks that are used with under that umbrella of human-centered design. And it's typically something that happens in pockets, but it's not widespread and mainstream across an organization. But that's what you need as, as a skill, at the very least, to design a product or experience or a service that does have the consumer in the middle. Then once you've designed it, you need very deep understanding of the digital and tech tools uh, to build that experience and build that service or product that you're talking about. You're almost always connecting data sources, uh, like, like Gary's mentioned, and you are uh, the building uh, is very robust. So you need a very specialized set of skills and understanding there. Then you need finance because the economics have to make sense. Uh, you have to provide a growth track, like the, the service or product that you're talking about. Uh, all the players involved have to benefit from it. Uh, or else it, it won't make business sense. It has to make business sense in order to be justified. And then finally, you need marketing chops because you're going to be influencing consumers' behaviors. You need to understand them and be able to engage them, open a conversation, and explain to them what their choices are. And you need to listen to them and and, and know so all these basic functions of marketing. Um, so wherever that sits, I think I think this conversation is just now beginning to happen in in the industry. But I expect to hear more about it, about what a consumer strategy role might look like and see that enter the conversation. It'll probably be called something different. You know, it'll probably be something related to that. But this combination of parts that have traditionally been housed in different departments that don't talk to each other a lot, I think we'll see a lot more of that. If you could snap your fingers and have just one change made that could strengthen consumerism in healthcare, what would that one single change be? Beth, start with you. Well, I'd probably go back to my transparency uh, say, statements, really saying, show me the prices, show me the quality as you define quality, and then show me that you 
will incorporate my opinion of quality as the person who's going to be consuming the, the services. So I, I just think that transparency is so, so critical. I want to know how much you're going to charge me. I want to know how good you are at it. And I want to know how, how you're going to treat me as a customer. Very simple premise. Jared? I think I'd just say that the industry will welcome the changes that are coming and will take the lead rather than resist it. You know, we saw organizations resist digital transformation for decades and we saw where that got them. It didn't get them to where they they just thought it was going to be a fad or something that went away and they could just stick with business as usual. And so I, I'd love to see it happen sooner rather than later. And I'd love for the existing uh, players and leaders in the industry, whether that is the medical profession, you know, the medical institutions of, uh, of the world uh, or other players who are incumbents and in strong market positions right now, uh, that they would see the value of partnering together and taking the lead and, and not resist it because that'll get us there a lot sooner. And Gary. Yeah. Um, for me, it's, um, it's always a little bit of go big or go home, but I, I, I would love for every single person in the U.S., all 350 million of them, to know that they are in charge of their own health, uh, top down. And what does that and what does that mean? It's not your provider, it's not your payer, it's not CVS, it's none of them. Although they stake claim to be the greatest, you know, practitioner and the greatest supporter and administrator of your health, they don't own your health. You do. I don't. Everybody, I don't think everybody gets that. Um, and it's, and it's for, and it's, and it's, again, it comes back to all the things that we've talked about in terms of things being more open. And when things are open, the control comes back to the consumer and control is a strong word, but it's really what it is, particularly when it comes to your health. And it's not just riding on a Peloton. It's not just having, you know, your Apple watch and working out and tracking all of that. Like people are like, well, that's what I do. And that's part of my health. Yeah. But managing your health is a lifelong exercise that cuts across a significant number of boundaries, both known and unknown for them, for those born and unborn, because your, your, your life can become somebody else's life and then so on down the line. And how does that get kind of controlled and owned by you? What mechanisms are most put in your hands for you to be able to do that? And we are far, far, far from allowing that to happen. There's no killer app. There is, there is no transcendence universally across the country on a standard model that is, that is again, 100% customer-centric. Many are trying and dabbling in it. Um, I'm beginning to say that they're on that movement, but it's slow. It's got a lot of you know, broken parts that continue to kind of show up again and again and again. Um, but um, again, snapping the figure, it would make life a lot easier if the culture of, of the U.S. and globally, quite frankly, knew that they were in charge and to begin to kind of force that change from that angle, that would help speed things up significantly. I want to thank the panel today for taking their time and sharing their great insights. Uh, Beth, Gary, and, and Jared, it has been a privilege and a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show today and, and definitely looking forward to doing it again. Thanks for having me, Steve. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for letting me be a part of this. Thanks, Steve. Great job as usual. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. 
Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again.